The future is a hefty responsibility and not one that we take lightly. But then taking things lightly has never been what hefty is about. That's why we've created the Hefty Renew program that turns hard to recycle plastics into valuable resources like park benches and building materials. To participate, simply fill up an orange Hefty Renew bag with accepted items, tie it up, and drop it in with your regular recycling. That's it. It's that easy. It's time to rethink recycling with Renew. Particular valued resources may vary by geography. More info available at heftyrenew.com. This is the Read to Lead podcast, episode 333. Growing up, I was told a great leader was someone who was really strong, never allowed anyone to see their weaknesses or fears or doubts or imperfections. And a drug addict was something to be ashamed of and a horrible person. And so in my life, I have discovered the other side of both of those definitions. Hi there. I'm so glad you're here. My name is Jeff Brown, and you found the Read to Lead podcast, a podcast I created to help with your personal and professional growth, because I believe that if you want to achieve true success in your business and in your life, that intentional and consistent reading is a must. Now, my job is to not only help you narrow your reading list, but bring you key insights and valuable ideas from our guests each and every week. Last week, it was Michael Goldberg. This week, it's another Michael, this time Michael Brodywaite, author of the book, Great Leaders Live Like Drug Addicts, How to Lead Like Your Life Depends on It. I'll be asking Michael to share about what he means when he says we must be willing to screw up our leadership, how ending your addiction to wearing metaphorical masks can be your competitive advantage, we'll dig into Michael's mask-free program he's developed for leaders and much more. Before sending me a copy of his book, Michael wrote in the front of it a note to me that says in part, this is not just another book about leadership, nor just another book about a drug addict's recovery. This is a prescription for an entirely new way to lead. We will revolutionize the rules of leadership. I think Michael is well on his way to accomplishing that goal, and it's one of the many reasons I decided to invite him on. Well, at age 23, Michael Brody Waite was a full-blown drug addict. He was kicked out of college, fired from his job, and evicted from his apartment. Over 17 years later, Michael is a recovering addict, three-time CEO, TEDx speaker, Inc. 500 founder, and leadership coach. Michael's background in overcoming addiction is the foundation for his mask-free leadership system, which is built upon three principles that saved him from death and set him apart as a leader. His TEDx talk, Great Leaders Do What Drug Addicts Do, has been viewed over a million times in over 25 countries and provides insight into his years-long journey from near homelessness and addiction to successful entrepreneurship. He is on a mission to show the world the secret that all addicts know, uh, and he's going to talk about that, and his book, which is called Great Leaders Live Like Drug Addicts, How to Lead Like Your Life Depends on It. Michael Brody Waite, welcome to the Read to Lead podcast. Excited to have you here. I do. I'm excited to be here. Thank you for having me. Well, uh, for context, I want to uh, first dive into a quote that's in the beginning of your book, goes something along the lines of, a head full of recovery will screw up your using. And, yep. and, you, and you say that your goal is to screw up our leadership. So so what does that mean and look like exactly? Yeah. And despite having that in my book, you still allowed me to be on your podcast, which I'm <laughs> grateful for. Um, so to me growing up, I, I think that I was told what a great leader looked like. And I was also told what a drug addict looked like. A great leader was someone who was really strong, 
uh, never allowed anyone to see their weaknesses or fears or doubts or imperfections. And a drug addict was something to be ashamed of and a horrible person. Mm. And so in my life, I have discovered the other side of both of those definitions. And so when I look at the great leaders in our past, I see people that are addicted to fixing, managing and controlling perception the same way an active drug addict is. But when I look at the great leaders that are emerging in our present and in our future, I think they'll lead in a fundamentally different way. And that will be consistent with the way that I learned to live as a recovering addict. And the way that I learned how to live as a recovering addict to me is like the, at the heart of what truly great leadership is. And so I want to carry that message and say, hey, the way that addicts lead themselves is fundamentally different than the way that we expect leaders to lead. And so I want to screw up your definition of leadership and and. And once you hear this, you can't unhear it. That's for sure. I was fascinated by your uh, story about your transition from from high school uh, to college. And I think this is something that a lot of people will identify with. I certainly did. This need you had to uh, reinvent yourself. Where where did that need come from? I, I grew up pretty sheltered. And as a result, I didn't fully get the message that being vulnerable and demonstrating emotions and showing the sensitive sides of yourself was dangerous. And so I got a rude awakening when we moved when I was 10 years old from Northern California to Southern California from a really down to earth environment to Hollywood. And, and just, a, a, you know, the first thing someone asked me was, what does your dad do? What does he drive and where do you live? Hmm. And, and that's where I got the message that your externals matter far more than your internals and that it's dangerous to show your true self. So growing up in high school, I got made fun of. All of my friends, my closest friends were these girls that I, I had crushes on all of them um, <laughs> and none of them wanted to date me at all. I was like the best friend that they would talk to after they went on a date with someone that treated them like crap. Mm. And I watched my friends be attracted to guys that were tough. There were stereotypical men that, that were even like mean. Mm. And so when I got to college, I had had just I'd had enough of feeling uncomfortable in my own skin. And so in my attempt to try to solve that, I decided that I would become someone different. Mm. And so that's where I tried to be the tough guy who didn't give an F. Um, but the problem is, is that that isn't actually who I was. So I needed drugs and alcohol to help me become that guy. And that didn't work out very well. <laughs> no, no, it did not. It did not. Um, and, you know, if you if, on any given night, if you if I was uh, drunk or high enough, you would know that I gave an F. Mm. Um, but it was, you know, I, I got the message that I could numb my feelings using drugs and alcohol. And I got the message that my feelings were an incredible liability. Um, and so in college, I had access to drugs and alcohol. And I also had this incredible desire to become someone that was way tougher, which is just, you know, and I talk about this in my book. It's crazy because now my vulnerability is my superpower. Mm. And I can't tell you how many people are walking around out there in this world that they get these messages growing up and they try to obscure the very best parts of themselves out of fear just because other people don't like it. But like at the same time, we all have this desire to be unique and special. And it's just like these two ideologies completely conflict. You know, and, and to that, you talk about your addiction being your competitive edge or for all of us who, who wear these masks, we, we can have a competitive edge because by taking them off, we're in the minority. You're actually yep. thankful for having gone through what you went through now that you're on the on the other side of it. Can you expound a little bit on that? Yeah. So so I definitely, you know, I think it's always important to uh, preface this considering our current context. Like I call it living and leading behind a mask. Hmm. And obviously I don't mean a physical mask. I mean right. like the masks. The philosophical mass leaders have been wearing for thousands of years, right? And so we all get the messages that we need to hide our true selves behind this mask. And so for me, 
when I got clean, they told me that I basically had to lose all of the masks or I was going to die. And that threat was stronger than people are going to take advantage or reject me for being sensitive. And so at the beginning in my recovery, I was just kind of following directions. And I tell a story where I didn't follow directions, but I was trying to follow directions. And the thing that I learned over time was this ability to be what I call rigorously authentic became a competitive advantage. It it saved me 500 hours a year. It helped me connect with people in a way that others couldn't. It helped me grow faster that others couldn't. It helped me represent my unique value and perspective in a way that most people couldn't. And it became such a competitive advantage that I started to ask myself like, wow, why am I able to do this? And all the people that I lead can't. And the biggest difference between myself and them was I was an addict in recovery. And so one of the things that I'll do when I do like speaking is I'll tell people that I'm grateful for my addiction and they, they assume that I'm, I'm talking about my recovery. Mm. And, and no, I thank God for my addiction before I start talking to him about my recovery because my addiction gives me two things that most people don't have that allows me to reap the value of being an authentic leader that most people can't do. The first thing it gives me is it gives me incentive. If I go into a company and I say authentic leaders will be more successful, eh, you know, great. Maybe, maybe there's an advantage. But when I went to my 12 step meeting, my sponsor said, if you don't take the mask off, you're going to freaking die. Mm. That's an incentive. So I had an incentive. And then because the addiction is so prevalent, there are programs, there are 12 step programs. There are other types of programs dedicated to training you on how to do this because your life depends on it. Right. And so I got this world-class training for the price of hanging out with somatics and a terrible cup of coffee. <laughs> so I'm grateful for my addiction. And I love that, that how you frame that. Uh, zeroing in more so on the recovery process for, for just a second, I got a kick out of the story about your initial attitude in recovery, this, this sort of mindset of, man, I'm killing recovery. Can, can you share yeah. a bit about that? Um, well, you know, recovery is a process. You don't learn all the things. Uh, it's been 17 and a half years. So uh, at the beginning, there were a lot of things I still had to learn. And so even though I understood that I had to be authentic, I still was trying to manipulate the perception of everybody around me. Mm-hmm. And so I would go into my 12 step meetings and I would see the types, the way, you know, what we do in there is we share. And I would see the way that the people would share where other people were affected, where they would like, oh, wow, that was a great share. Mm-hmm. And, and so I started to try to model my shares off of what other people were doing. <laughs> and, and, I, and I stopped really being honest and vulnerable about my experience in early recovery, which I sorely needed. And I started trying to time jokes and, and make a really cool point. And I was like, I was hoping for that moment in the movie where everybody's breath is just taken away. <laughs> I didn't know what a TED Talk was, but I was literally auditioning for a <laughs> TED Talk every single night. And the problem was is that what was going on underneath was some really hard stuff. I was adapting to recovery. They tell they tell us something. They say, the good news about recovery is you get your feelings back. The bad news is you get your feelings back. And I had all kinds of stuff happening that was hurting me. Mm. And so one day I walked into the to the meeting and I, and I just I could I'd have dropped the pretenses and stopped trying to, you know, kill recovery by making everybody think I'm awesome. And I just had to share where I was at. And it it wasn't a TED talk. It wasn't beautiful. There was no punchline. There was no good timing. And when I was done, I was mortified because I just felt like I put everything out there and I've been trying to look like a cool addict amongst the other recovering addicts. You'd you'd bombed basically, right? (laughs) I bombed. Right. Exactly. I'd done the, you know, it's probably the equivalent to being pantsed in eighth grade in front of the cool (laughs) kids. Right. Like, and so I tried to book it when I was walking out of that meeting and, uh, and this old biker, he was an old timer at 15 years clean, 
His name was Tim. He was really tough. And he grabbed me and he turned me around and he was like about to say something. And I was worried that he was about to tell me that like I shouldn't come back. Oh, wow. Because he's tough. He looks tough. He looks like what I wished I'd been mm. growing up. And then he says to me, he says, that was the best share you've ever done. Mm-hmm. <laughs> I was like, Tim, that was the worst share I've ever done. <laughs> he's like, no, it's the first real share mm. that you've ever done. That's what it takes to stay clean. I got chills. <laughs> and that's what I want to see. That was, that was a game-changing moment for me. No one had ever told me it was cool to be authentic. And here I had a guy dressed in head-to-toe Harley leather mm-hmm. telling me it was cool to be authentic and that my life depended on it and then modeling it himself because I expected him to be tough and he was mm-hmm. being vulnerable just in sharing that. So it was, just, it was a very powerful moment for me where I was like, oh, even though I'm hanging out with a bunch of recovering addicts I'm not using, I got to stop doing what I have just been trained to do, which is try to manage everybody's perception around me so that they think I'm great. You know, in this part of the book, I'm remembering back, you kind of opened my eyes to this this idea of imposter syndrome and how many of us feel we suffer from that. And in yep. large part, this is the reason because we are acting like imposters half the time, right? Yeah. If you get a promotion or you get a deal or you're successful and you were managing perception along the way and hiding aspects of yourself that were true, no wonder you don't feel worthy of your success. <laughs> mm. Because the way, like, there's all these really elaborate articles on how to stop you know, imposter syndrome. It's really simple. Stop being an effing imposter. <laughs> stop being like, I struggle with this right now. So like mm. when I do video content for social media, my wife who, who, who like grabs a video, she'll have to stop me and be like, stop trying to be Michael Brody Waite. And just be Michael Brody Waite. Mm. And there's a subtle difference there. If you can just be your true self, like your true self, and then you get positive results, you can trust those results for the first time in a way that climbing a corporate ladder, building a company as an entrepreneur, whatever it is, even parents, right? Everybody's suffering from imposter syndrome because they're all trying to show different parts of themselves to different people based off of how they think they're going to perceive them. Mm. You've alluded to some of this, Michael, but talk a bit about the process you went through sort of realigning your, your principles. What what were the, the broken principles you once lived by and, and what are the new principles you, you, you've transitioned to? Okay, so principle one, I was uncomfortable in my own skin, ashamed of who I was, so I hid who I was at any cost. I was a great chameleon. I could be like this group of people, this group of people over there, never actually just saying this is who I am, take it or leave it. Mm. Uh, I was a control freak, so I'm sure no one can relate to that. It's on read to lead for business like leaders, right? But so <laughs> um, I wanted to control everything to make sure that I got what I wanted. And as an addict, one of my primary drivers was I wanted to avoid discomfort and pain. I mean, yeah, like a lot of people do that through food and social media and internet and buying things. But like I was putting chemicals in my body because I wanted to avoid discomfort or pain. And so when you're running around and you're hiding your true self and you're trying to control everything, and you're trying to avoid discomfort or pain, you end up being somebody that, that you don't even recognize in the mirror. And so the principles that those got converted to is when, when I got clean – I mean, anybody that knows a 12-step program knows this isn't exactly a 12-step program. This is my interpretation and synthesis of it. But the three principles that I live by now are, number one, practice rigorous authenticity. Not just authenticity. Everybody can talk about the time that they kept it real in front of grandma. Okay? (laughs) I'm not talking about just, oh, check the box, selective authenticity. Hmm. Rigorous authenticity. And that's, that's a very big difference. Number two, surrender the outcome. 
actually so many of us are so obsessed focusing on things that we can't control that we lose so much time and energy that we can't actually allocate to the things that we can. Mm-hmm. I mean, a salesperson that's focused on their quota and territory versus the one making calls, like we see this everywhere. And so learning how to do something that's very counterintuitive as a human and as a leader, surrendering uh, the outcome is an incredibly freeing experience that takes away stress, anxiety, lost time, and allows us to optimize who we are. And then the third principle is doing uncomfortable work. And and when I talk to people uh, and groups, they'll say, Mike, wait a second. Okay, those first two, you're right. We don't do those. But we do uncomfortable work, man. I'm like, no, no, you don't. You, you were trained how to do hard work and you were trained how to do smart work. Those are physical and intellectual. Uncomfortable work is emotional. It's literally a sensation in our body that deters us from taking action that is good for us. Everybody has seen someone doing eight hours of hard work avoiding 10 minutes of uncomfortable Mm. work. Um, Since we're on a leadership podcast, performance management, anyone? (laughs) Customer expectations, anyone? Mm, Preach. 10 minutes of uncomfortable work versus eight hours of hard or smart work. And so those are the three principles that I now uh, live by and that, and that, you know, I I would not have known and and learned how, you know, anyone can talk about principles. I wouldn't have learned how to make the muscle memory if not for recovery from addiction. Mm. You've mentioned some of the masks that that you've worn over the years. Uh, What are, what are some of the more common masks that we, we tend to wear as a, as a society? I think you said there are four of them that are, that are really common, right? Yeah. I started with a hypothesis that there were 50, um, I'm not dedicated to this or obsessed <laughs> at all. Um, and, it, and it wasn't me taking everybody else's inventory. It's me looking at the crap that I do. Um, and, and so when I started, um, after my TED Talk, I started doing workshops where I was like, I, I'm so tired of people creating principles and TED Talks that are inspiring. I want implementation. I want step-by-step idiot proof implementation Mm. that makes it frictionless for someone to manifest the potential of what I'm talking about. So I, I wanted to create a mask assessment because like when I do speaking engagements and, or I'm talking to people for the first time, I am focused on doing what I call, and this is going to make sense, a mask intervention. Hmm. I want people to understand that they have a problem and, and that problem is what I call mask addiction And so I created a mask assessment. So I started with the 50 masks and I started, you know, having people go through this assessment. I boiled it down to 20. And then over time, we started to see that there were so many overlapping components of each of these 20 masks that we were able to distill it down to four. And now we've given this assessment to like over 2000 leaders. 90% of them say that they're wearing one of these masks on a regular basis, costing them time. And so um, I feel more confident in the in these masks today than I ever did before. And so the four masks holding back every individual team and organization is the mask of saying yes when you could say no, the mask of hiding a weakness, the mask of avoiding difficult conversations, and the mask of holding back your unique perspective. And I've got like anecdotes around all four of those. But those four, when I say that, um, in when I've done a speaking engagement, like 2,000 people in the room, 200 people in the room, I get them to stand up. And I say, in the last 30 days, have you said yes when you could say no? And I go through them. Mm. Every time, the entire audience has taken a seat. Just four questions can take the entire room and make them sit. Mm. Because everybody can identify with one of those masks. 
Well, I, I identified right away with two or three of them, I think. <laughs> so. Oh, that's very common. Very common. Uh, I think I personally think we all struggle with all four. I don't go to this mm. depth in the book, but I go to it in my programs. But there are seven dimensions of stakeholders that we are more and, and there are certain stakeholders we're more likely to wear the mask with than others. And when people take the assessment, they get really demotivated in the second month of our program because they're like, what the heck? Our, my authenticity <laughs> percentage went down. I'm like, no, that's normal. Because you don't realize how many masks you're wearing until you start doing this work to try to overcome mask addiction. If, if you don't mind, uh, I was hoping maybe you could unpack a little bit of the mask-free uh, program, more specifically the three phases that you walk through in the book. I can't remember what the first one's called. I know the second one is, let's see, mask-free sponsor, and then it's mask-free yep. society. What's the first one again? Yeah. So the first one's mask free system. So I, I built this off of what my, what I've experienced in, in 12 step recovery. So mm-hmm. in 12 step recovery, um, the first thing everybody that is aware of this knows is they hand an addict a book with the 12 steps in it. And so the 12 steps are this beautiful system that allows millions of people to stop using drugs and alcohol or whatever they're addicted to. But the way that we help an addict recover isn't, we'd say, here's the book. Good luck. That doesn't work. You need someone to guide you through it that's been there and can relate to your perspective. And so in 12-step recovery, we then get what's known as a sponsor, which a lot of people are familiar with. And then we go to meetings and people are familiar with that. Well, there's a reason. It's called the three-legged stool. These, these three things comprise the program and they, are, they have to be used together for it to work. So what I did was in acknowledging that I think that our focus on masks is so involuntary that it's an addiction, I wanted to model my mask-free program off of 12-step recovery. And so the mask-free program has the mask-free system. And we instead of the 12 steps, it's these three principles, practice rigorous authenticity, surrender the outcome, and do uncomfortable work. And there's a specific way that I take people through step-by-step to implement it so that they end up with what's known as a mask-free action card that they can implement in one minute a day. Mm. Um, And so they do this, but they can't do it alone. They have to do it with the mask-free sponsor. So this is somebody that is working the mask-free program that has experience using the system and they're willing to guide you through it. And it's the value is the perspective they have, not that they're an expert. You can have a mask-free sponsor that has less time in the mask-free program sponsoring someone who has more. And then the third one is mask-free society. And that's really about, we end up uh, living by the values of the society that we choose to be a part of. And if you choose to be a part of drug culture, you're going to choose to do drugs. If you choose to be part of a a work culture that believes in masks, you're going to wear masks. So you have to hang out and and it's really changing your your way of life with other people that that believe what you believe. And so for those of us in the mask-free program, we we are all working the mask-free system with a mask-free sponsor and and convening as a mask-free society. Mm. I want uh, to create a scenario, paint a scenario for you right now, uh, Michael. I want you to imagine that someone is listening right now who is sitting across from someone who's sitting down for a, a job interview and they've handed their resume. And that person who's listening to this right now is looking at that resume and they see a gap. They see a hole and they ask the uh, interviewee about that hole. And after a pregnant pause, that person works up the courage to say, well, I'm a recovering drug addict, so that's why there's this you know, two-year gap. What advice would you give the person in that position to decide whether or not to hire this individual? How would you recommend they handle that scenario? I like the way you took uh, my Sam Goody moment and, <laughs> and, and, and turned it into the other perspective. I love that. So 
That's such a great question because I think that recovering addicts are some of the best talent that anyone can acquire for their organization. Mm. So to me, this is, first of all, learning how to live and lead mask free is all about learning how to lead yourself. We focus so much on leading others. We don't focus enough about leading ourselves. So the first thing is it's normal to have a reaction where you go, Oh crap, this person's a recovering drug addict. Like this is a problem. Like all, all of your worst nightmares are valid, realistic and true. And it's normal to have like an almost visceral reaction of, I don't want this person to work for me because there's risk. So, so the question is, how can you look at this particular characteristic and actually vet it based off of a continuum of anywhere from they're a risk to themselves and society to they're, they're what myself and my friends are, which are productive members of society excelling because we're in recovery. And I think it all goes back to what are they doing to stay clean? What are they doing to stay sober? What are the steps that they're taking? And if you have them describe what they're doing to achieve their sobriety or their abstinence or whatever, and you hear a commitment to practicing rigorous authenticity, surrendering the outcome and doing uncomfortable work, you just found your diamond in the rough. Mm. Because the thing is, is that recovering addicts, we grow and scale like crazy. If we can be honest about being a recovering drug addict in a job interview, you don't have to worry about us manipulating metrics (laughs) and, and lying about stuff. And, and, you know, if we can surrender the outcome of what's going to happen when we say we're an addict, we're not going to sit there and gossip over company politics and waste a tremendous amount of time and energy because we have this muscle known as surrender. And when it comes down to doing the uncomfortable work, declaring your weakness, saying no to the customer, having a difficult conversation where you do performance management with your employee, sharing your unique perspective, even when the boss's boss is in the room. Addicts, just like I touched on at the beginning, are trained to do this to save their life. So they're going to do it for your company. So the thing that you have to understand is, are they working a program? If they are working a program, it's just like anything else. They have the training, then they are they are a high probability of an incredible asset that frankly, and that my fellow addicts won't like this, is they're probably going to be cheaper because they have less opportunity mm-hmm. and they're going to grow like crazy and, you're, and they're going to become a really trusted, valued asset. Now, if they're saying, hey, I'm not really doing anything, it was just a hard time, I'd caution you against hiring them. Because to me, any addict, whether you're a mask addict, a drug addict, or an alcohol addict, or, or a behavior addict, if, if you aren't actively working some sort of a program to overcome that addiction, you are vulnerable to relapse. Mm-hmm. But if you are working a program, we, you know, there's a saying that never have we seen someone fail as thoroughly followed this path. Um, people see addicts relapse all the time. It's not because addicts relapse. It's because they stop doing what they're told. Mm-hmm. They stop working their program. And for you, being in that interviewee chair and hearing the words, when can you start? I mean, that was the start of all of this, right? I mean, that was that was responsible, arguably, for everything that's then followed. Yeah, it, it, it all stems from that moment because that's when I learned, you know, my, I wanted to lie. I actually asked my sponsor what my lie should be. And then I was flabbergasted when he told me that I should actually tell the guy the truth. Mm. And so for me, that was where I learned that Whatever my decisions are professionally, they have to be informed by my decisions in terms of recovery. Mm. And so I didn't do it expecting to get the job. I did it just to follow my sponsor's suggestions. So I was so surprised. I I look at my my career in these stages. That was a stage where I realized, and there's actually a stat that we found that like 85% of the things that we worry about never come true. (laughs) And so that was the moment where I realized, like, not everybody's an addict, but everybody can relate to not wanting to share the worst thing about them in a, in a job interview. And that's where I learned that it's how you lead yourself through your worst thing that matters. It's not whether you have a worst thing, because everybody has a worst thing. Right. 
So I survived that and that gave me the courage to then look at, okay, how do I apply my recovery to my career? And then as I went through my career, I started to realize, wow, this, this process, this skill set doesn't just help me survive. It helps me thrive and actually became my competitive advantage. Well said. Well, uh, before I ask a couple of questions in the time we have remaining that aren't directly related to the book, I wanted to ask if there's anything else, Michael, from the book that you want to make sure we know. I, I, I want to share something that maybe you would think is funny just since you talked to so many authors. So I'm not recovered from mask addiction. I'm in recovery from mask addiction. Mm. And, and so I will never get there. So like, you know, Tony Robbins is great. He'll get on stage and tell you how to fix yourself. He doesn't talk about what he's, you know, where he's struggling as much. I'm mm-hmm. um, not to take Tony Robbins inventory. So, um, one interesting thing that I just want to share in my book, when I was writing it, I got halfway through and I hated it. <laughs> like it was horrible mm-hmm. and I wanted to give up. And my wife asked me why. And I said, dude, this is, I'm, I'm not being myself. You call your wife, dude. Yes, I do. I'm from California. So I say, dude, and I've lived in Nashville for 17 years. So I say, y'all, I, I like, I can fit in anywhere. Um, yes, I do. I do call her dude. Um, and so I was like, I hate, I hate my book because it was, there were so many stats. It was covered up with my insecurity that people wouldn't think that what I had to say was important. And so somewhere along the line, I'd started writing the book that I thought other people would respect instead of the one that I would. And so I had to scrap the whole project and start over And as a result, um, I did something that I was warned I should not do. And that was I put a chapter at the very end that for me, most of the self-help books that I read or inspirational books are like they end with, I did all of this. I got a Ferrari and you can too, (laughs) you know, like like that, that inspirational hope shot. Mm. And so what I wanted to do is I wanted to end the book with the year of my life um, six years ago when I stopped practicing everything that I was preaching Mm. and I went into full mask relapse, I didn't relapse in terms of addiction uh, to alcohol and drugs, but I went into full mask relapse mode. And as a result, I divorced my wife, divorced my business partner, and I had to sell the business that I'd always wanted to keep the rest of my life. And so it's called a tale of two divorces. Mm. And I leave it for the reader because I want to challenge the reader. This isn't just a book where you go, oh, these are some cool tactics that I can implement. A lot of people are going to read my book and go, man, that's not for me. But I have people all over the world that are reading it and going, this is a way of life. And I wanted to show people where I had failed to live that way as a way to inspire everybody to be able to share what their vulnerabilities are. And also to say this requires vigor to be able for you to be successful at it. And I would imagine now that that's probably the chapter you get the most comments on, right? It's so stupid. It's like (laughs) I'm writing a book about authenticity where like all these like horrible things I think are going to happen. It works out great. And then I don't want to include this chapter. And then, yes, of course, it's the one that people love. It's the one that I love. Yes. Yes, of course. But like, it's just crazy how our fear just tells us things that aren't true. Mm. Well, as a uh, successful TEDx uh, speaker, I think your Nashville uh, TEDx talk is the most viewed Nashville TEDx talk ever. Um, uh, What might be some of your tips, and I imagine authenticity is going to come in here, for delivering an impactful and and memorable public talk? There are are two conflicting tips Mm, that I live. So on the one hand, when I I got selected to do it, um, they gave me a coach. And now I'm all about sponsorship. So I was like, okay, cool. Mm-hmm. Um, I'll work with a coach. This is great. But they also told me to get this book, a book called Talk Like Ted. And it's about like why some of the best TED Talks are some of the best TED Talks. So I, on the one hand, I would say access experience, strength, and hope from those that have been through it before so that you're able to learn from them. My sponsor in 12-step recovery said, I want you to stand on my shoulders and see further than I can. Mm. Same thing if you're doing a TED Talk, you're not alone. 
There are people that have done it that are willing to share their experience, both in a book and as a coach. At the same time, there was this moment where I was reading this book and I had like tried, there's like 11 best practices in the book. And I tried to like turn my Ted talk into all 11 best practices. (laughs) And I go to one of my 12 step meetings. That's my home group on Wednesday and Friday nights. And someone's talking about something that's relevant to my, my Ted talk. And so I get inspired to share and I've shared in this meeting thousands of times probably, but I share and my two of my best friends, Charlie and Kate, at the end of the meeting, come up to me and go, what the hell was that? <laughs> it was like the, it was like the opposite of the Tim experience. Yeah. So like what they're like, what was that? I was like, what do you want? And Kate goes, it sounded like you were freaking practicing your TED talk. <laughs> and I was like, I was. <laughs> She's like, dude, have you not like, do you not learn what you're freaking teaching people? Like what? She's like, you're just an addict in recovery. Go up there and share. Stop trying to not be who you are. And so, so the unfortunate Mm. truth is I had to synthesize these two realities that there are best practices that just make it more helpful. Like for example, I had four principles that I walked in that Ted talk with and my coach helped me understand that for a really good Ted talk to be successful, you got to pick one point and make that one point. And that fourth principle was a whole other like section of points. Um, and at the same time, authenticity is what allows people to connect. And if you're sharing your story, for the love of God, share your story, not someone else's. Mm. And so I had to practice. I practiced. And I know like, you know, you think an authenticity guy, like, you know, I just went up there and winged it. <laughs> I wrote my words over and over. Up and I was up till two in the morning. I, I did over a hundred hours of prep where I would go, go deliver it to an empty room, record it, listen to it, and revise what I was saying because I wanted to make sure that in those 18 minutes I delivered the most powerful message. And I the entire time I had to synthesize these two realities of what my coach was saying, what the book was saying, and then what was true to me. And I ended up with a really great blend. So I would I would just encourage anyone that wants to do a talk to really seek both of those, but it's up to you to synthesize um, how that integrates for you in your talk. It obviously worked. It did. I, I totally didn't think it would. Imposter <laughs> syndrome, maybe. But well, I love to ask uh, guests some of their favorite book recommendations. What are uh, a couple of books, maybe that uh, that you love to go back to occasionally because they had such an impact on you? Well, I uh, so I'm an avid reader. I totally was not, but then I became one. Not doing drugs helps you read. Mm. Um, <laughs> So the first one is, uh, in case anybody is listening right now and they haven't put it together, I am a total groupie for Brene Brown. <laughs> so um, I've never met her, but she inspired my work. And, and so The Gifts of Imperfection by Brene Brown really was the beginning of me understanding that it came at a time when people were telling me how to be a CEO and that a CEO does not share vulnerably with this team. Mm. And then I read this book from Brene Brown that says that vulnerability is like a real superpower and shows me how to do it. And she's the person that gave me permission through her book to use my 12 step recovery as my leadership skill set instead of trying to be like every other CEO. And then the book that came right after that, Daring Greatly, was even more specifically targeted towards leading yourself. Um, And that book just like absolutely floored me. So those, those two books were the basis, like when everybody asked me this question, that's what I talk about. But there's another book called The Present by Spencer Johnson. And um, he's a guy who wrote Who Moved My Cheese. Oh, and yeah, yeah. He's like Patrick Lencioni light. Um, <laughs> it's a story, but it's like even even shorter. Mm. And it's and it's a story about this boy and 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 he's looking for the present. And, and it's this whole play on words. And he thinks it's a, you know, a physical gift. And it's actually the gift of the moment. 
And building my company, I can't tell you how much fear I lived in. Mm. So much fear. And in recovery, they tell us to be present. In mindfulness practice, they tell us to be present. But something about reading that book really helped me to be present. And I remember specifically having a moment where I was, I had a, our biggest customer was 70% of our revenue. And they called me and said they were talking to one of our competitors. And I remember I was reading the book at that time. The level of fear, obsession, and stress that I felt was like a tenth of what I normally would have felt because I just kept coming back to the present. And so whenever anybody in my life is struggling through something, I send them this book and I give them a prescription. I tell them to read five pages, no less, no more, 20 days straight, because I don't like to read books to consume the information. I like to read books to live the information. I think integration is longer than it takes to actually read it. Mm -hmm. And if you can do that for 20 days, you will notice that you'll catch yourself living in the, in the, in the moment and letting go of the stress of the past and the future. Well, that's great advice. That lends itself to my next question, which was going to be, are there integration techniques you use to make sure that you uh, put into practice the books that you're reading? That's a great one, uh, reading five pages a day for 20 days. And it sounds like it just begins for you to just happen almost automatically. Any other uh, integration tips uh, you can share besides that one? Yeah. So in, in the Mastery Pro... So actually, the Mastery Program was inspired by how do you integrate the Gifts of Imperfection by Brene Brown, because mm. everybody in my company I gave this book to and none of them could implement it the way that I did. And someone said, well, I don't have what you have. Mm. I was like, well, what do I have that you don't have? They're like, <laughs> you have this 12-step recovery thing. Right. And so the, the mask-free action card that we create in one minute a day is really built off of in 12-step recovery, what's known as the 10th step. And that's where we take a daily inventory. And so this is going to sound really weak and simple and stupid, but it's the most <laughs> powerful thing. And people like, don't do it. And then the people that do it have amazing results. What we do, but we create this little action card um, using the three principles in my book. And then there's examples of this action card in the book. And what we do is we, we actually identify what our daily reflection is to live the three principles of mm -hmm. practice, rigorous authenticity, surrender the outcome, do uncomfortable work, but we apply it to our life. So for example, my current one is I say yes when I could say no. I can't control that I have PR and networking FOMO. Awkward to be on a podcast to say that. I can't control <laughs> if I lead myself and say no to requests so that I can help the people in the mastery program. Mm. And then the question I have to ask myself every day is, did I say no to corporate PR and networking FOMO? And then I've got three specific actions that are my uncomfortable work for this month. One like really big one where I have to cancel a contract with a partner. And then small ones where I have to change the way that I allocate my time. And so in order to use this card, all we do is we have you put it somewhere where you can read it every day and you literally just read it for one minute. You don't have to do anything, write anything, nothing, no magical online course, no conference, <laughs> no, no weekend workshop. You read this for one minute every day and it creates automatic awareness, which creates automatic growth, which creates automatic leadership. Wow. And I've had so many people go through the program and the difference is astounding. And so this is how I integrate all of the things that I learned because they end up showing up in my reflections and they end up showing up in my uncomfortable work. So I can take something that I read tomorrow that's a really helpful best practice. Like, for example, Greg McEwen's Essentialism. Mm. And, and I can say, okay, what's my reflection? Did I, did I grab anything that wasn't essential today? Right. And I can right. just integrate the principles and, and just one minute a day can change your life. And that's how we do it wow. in the mastery program. That was one of my favorite answers to that question I've ever had. And I've asked that question a lot. Oh, that's awesome. I'm honored by that. 
Uh, I'm writing a book called uh, Read to Lead, and I have a feeling I'm going to be coming back to you at some point to ask permission to quote you on some of that. Oh, God, I, I would be honored, dude. I would be honored. <laughs> well, finally, I'll ask, uh, what's ahead for you and your team as you look ahead to uh, the rest of 2020 and, of course, the crazy circumstances we find ourselves in now? Uh, what's ahead for you that you can talk about or excited about? Anything you want to want to share along those lines? So longer story for another day, but launching my book and the mastery program in the middle of a pandemic was both um, rewarding and, and really challenging. Mm. Um, challenging in that um, I had to figure out how to do speaking engagements differently and all that kind of stuff. But really rewarding because in a pandemic, everybody can relate to a drug addict because they're isolated by a disease. And so for us, we have three stages to the mastery program that I'm really excited about that we deliver both to individuals and we deliver to companies. Um, We have the mask-free intervention. So that's like speaking Mm -hmm. or reading my book. Um, We have the mask-free rehab, which is like the first 30 days of learning how to learn this system and apply it to take off your mask. And then we have the mastery program to help you make this a way of life. And what I'm really excited about right now is when I started this thing, the mastery program, everybody's like, oh, there's a personal brand built around you. And I'm like, oh, my God, I don't want that. <laughs> and the founder of AA, Bill Wilson, like he embraced his role as founder, but he built a program that could be successful without him. That wasn't a cult of personality. And so right now, um, we launched the mastery program formally May 26th when the book came out. And so in two months... We went from zero users of masteryprogram.com to 500 users, like Mm. 470 something. And we have a ton of people from all over the country and all over the world actively practicing this program. And so one of the things that I've been working on is really how do I build mask-free sponsors? And so we've been building the equivalent of a, um, in 12-step programs, we have like uh, step working guides and all this kind of stuff for the sponsors so that there's like infrastructure to support them. And so for this year, we're really building out mastery sponsorship. And it's really cool that like I'm the mastery sponsor for a guy named Tyler, who's a mastery sponsor for a guy named Ben, who's a mastery sponsor for a guy named Gibran. And it's like a multi-level marketing scheme, except <laughs> nobody gets rich. They just get like their true selves back. And, and I'm just looking forward to increasing the number of people that are using this and and at the same time getting to work with like companies like Google and Dell and and global payments and and corporations that bring me in to kind of bring a different perspective has been really rewarding. But at the end of the day, I don't care if it's companies or consumers. I just care that an individual learns a new way to live and lead and seeing the people actually experience the promise in the book. And, 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 and for me personally, like going, man, all this theory is actually reality and see how it's changing people's lives. I'm just, I just want to be able next time I talk to you to share even more stories of the impact that it's having on people because it's, mm. it's what I'm, I'm in this thing for purpose, not, not profit. And, it, and it's really powerful to see the impact. There will be a next time, no doubt. A, a mark of a good interview for me is is how many times I get chills listening to the other person talk. And I think I have a new record after this conversation. Oh, man. Well, thank you for that. Appreciate uh, the depth to which you shared about your personal story. The book, again, is called Great Leaders Live Like Drug Addicts, How to Lead Like Your Life Depends on It. Uh, His name is Michael Brodywaite. Michael, thank you so much for being here today. I loved hearing more about uh, your story and and enjoyed your book immensely. Uh, Thank you for reading it, and thanks for having me on. For more on Michael Brodywaite, check out the show notes page I've created just for this episode. That's found at readtoleadpodcast.com slash 333 for episode 333. I've included, of course, links to his website, the books he recommended, that TED Talk we spoke of, and much more. Again, that's readtoleadpodcast.com slash 333. 
In case you're wondering what's on deck, next week we'll talk with Shasta Nelson. She's the author of The Business of Friendship, Making the Most of Our Relationships, Where We Spend Most of Our Time. We'll follow Shasta, I just love saying her name, with a conversation with Renee Vidor. Her book is Measuring Up, How to Win in a World of Comparison. And then we'll talk with the co-founder of Square. His name is Jim McKelvey. And he's written a book called The Innovation Stack, Building an Unbeatable Business, One Crazy Idea at a Time. I love that book, and I think you will, too. That and more is ahead right here on the Read to Lead podcast. Finally, if you found this episode helpful, I hope you'll take a moment to think about who might also find it helpful. Would you recommend it to them? Maybe send them a link. I'd appreciate it. Again, the link to send is readtoleadpodcast.com slash 333. Well, that does it for this week. I look forward to seeing you next time. Until then, remember, leaders read and readers lead. Sick of being upsold at gyms? My guy, you're currently a base member. For $90 more, I can upgrade you to our Shred membership. For $130 more, you'll be a swole member. And for just $300 more, you'll reach Sweat Platinum. At Planet Fitness, you'll get energy without the upsell. Never pushy, always free fitness training and equipment for every workout. It's fitness that fits your budget. Join Planet Fitness for just $1 down and $10 a month. Cancel anytime. Deal ends Friday, May 10th. See Home Club for details.